0: What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why
1: can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN What's stopping I don't understand why I have to earn salvation.
2: 1-833-288-3986 What's stopping you?
3: Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest?
2: What's stopping
3: you? You, you, you?
2: This is Call to
3: Communion with
2: Dr.
0: David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Have you got a question or two about the Catholic faith, something that you're just not sure about and you don't know who to turn to? Well, you can turn to us. Here's our phone number, 833 288-EWTN to get that question answered about the Catholic faith, especially for all of you who are not of the Catholic faith. 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Australia, please dial 1 and then 205 271 2985 And of course, you can always send us an email. The address is ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinski is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for the program. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both of those platforms right now. Just put that in your, uh, put your question that is in the comments box, uh, Rich will see that he'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Hopefully, we can answer your question on today's program. Again, the number eight three three two eight eight EWTN. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm very well. You look a little sleepy, my friend.
4: I I've yeah been on the <laughs> tired side. Been been uh, been traveling. Went up to see the good folks at Indy Catholic Radio yesterday, but. Got up at 4 o'clock in the morning yesterday, got up 4 o'clock in the morning of the day. Oh, boy. half my day in airports, so I'm kind of snoozing through this one.
2: Well, but it'll be fine. Yep. yep. It'll be fine. And the folks at Catholic Radio Indy are fantastic.
4: Absolutely wonderful. Had a great time with those those ladies and gentlemen.
2: Fantastic. We're going to lead off uh, today with a question from Greg in North Carolina. Dr. Anders, I was taught that until Jesus rose from the dead, the gates of heaven were not open. So I'm unclear how Elijah and Moses could appear bodily with Jesus at the transfiguration, which happened before the resurrection. Thank you for any clarification. And again, that's from Greg in Sheryls Ford, North Carolina.
4: Yeah, we have to conclude that they weren't actually in bodies, but in uh, virtual bodies, if you will. Okay, So in the same way that— The angels that appeared with the Lord when the three visitors meet Abraham and they sit and eat and drink with him, Uh Uh, Catholic theologians who ask that question say, well, you know, angels don't have digestive tracts, so how do they (laughs) eat and drink? And there is something in the tradition called a theophany, and that's when when God appears— uh, in a visible form, even though God himself has no visible form and, and is a spirit, but he can manifest a visible form that is a kind of token of his presence, that uh-huh. we can perceive. In the same way, there's such a thing as an angelophany, and that's when an angel is made visible to us, even though naturally an angel has no body, has no substance. And so since it's just there to make an impression upon our our, our sense organs— it's not necessary to uh, to infer that the angel actually has all the parts that a human would have. If you digested that, if you dissected that angelophony, you you, you know you wouldn't find all the the mm. ticking parts on the inside. It's okay. just there for our phenomenal impressions. And I think you would have to infer something similar about the physical appearance of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Trans uh, no, on the Mount of Transfiguration. That we're not talking about Moses and Elijah in fully functional, you know, um, organismal biology and however that will exist after the resurrection but but some kind of temporary manifestation merely for the purposes of the of the theophany
2: it was interesting Uh, thank you so much for your question it was interesting hearing that uh talked about yesterday that uh, during uh the readings of for the second sunday of lent Mm. talking about the transfiguration uh made me smile because when adrienne and i went to the holy land a few years back that was the very first place we went was Mount Tabor, and to the uh, to the big uh, chapel there on the feast of the uh, Transfiguration on the on the uh, yeah so it was very cool oh neat fantastic bringing all that back here's one now from Jay in Caldwell Texas Dr Anders here's a follow up on a comment you made a while back about a non Catholic going to confession suppose the Protestant wanted to confess his sins he knew all the right words to say in the confessional and didn't tell the priest that he was not a Catholic. The priest, in normal fashion, would say the words of absolution. Would that be an effective confession?
4: Okay, effective is the wrong adjective. Oh, All right. Um, would it be valid? No. Okay. No, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be a valid sacrament. It wouldn't be a valid sacrament because the priest doesn't have jurisdiction to absolve the sins of Protestants. Except in some very limited circumstances. Now, a priest can validly absolve the sins of a Protestant if the Protestant is in danger of death and has Catholic faith in the sacraments. Under those two conditions, the priest can validly absolve. Uh, okay. But if it's uh, if it's someone who's trying to pull a fast one on the priest, mm. and and for some odd reason thinks it would be a good idea to sneak in and go to confession to a Catholic priest, the priest doesn't actually have jurisdiction okay. over that over that soul, and so it wouldn't be valid. Now, that is different from whether or not there would be any kind of efficacy. So let me give you a, a circumstance that's mm-hmm. hypothetical. Um, let's say there's a Protestant who has come to Catholic faith in the sacraments, but yet does not have a fully developed understanding of Catholic ecclesiology, does not understand that he is not within the Church's jurisdiction, does not understand that the priest does not have jurisdiction to absolve him, um, goes into the confessional and is genuinely contrite in seeking reconciliation with God. Now, I would never say that nothing happened to that soul. That's more than I know. Sure. Right? And I would presume on the mercy of God. What I can tell you is it's not a valid sacrament. That doesn't mean that God wouldn't respond in some extraordinary, extra-sacramental way to uh, to this act of penance that,
2: was moved out of good faith and a good will for someone who desired to be closer to God. Okay. Jay, thanks so much for your email. Quick question here from Kenny on YouTube. Dr. Anders, what is your opinion on the Book of Enoch? Do you feel it has relevance? Oh, this is such a fun question.
4: I enjoy questions like this. So, the Book of Enoch is not canonical. It's not inspired scripture. Mm -hmm. It is, however, a tremendously important historical document, and there's no doubt that it was widely influential in Second Temple Judaism. And we find multiple copies of the Book of Enoch in the caves at Qumran, uh, you know, the Essene community. Yes, yes. The Book of Jude quotes from the Book of Enoch. And there's no doubt that some of the apocalyptic imagery and some of the cosmology reflected in Enoch were were common beliefs among Jews of Jesus' era. And so there's an influence there on sort of New Testament cosmology. Uh, even though the book itself is not inspired and shouldn't be treated as such. Kenny,
2: thanks for checking in on YouTube. In a moment, we'll be talking with Elizabeth in Morganfield, Kentucky, Griffin driving through Ohio, and hopefully you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's called a communion on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you want to stay informed and educated with the latest news and truth on abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, the culture of death, all things touching on the culture of life, you need to check out Pro-Life Weekly with Prudence Robertson. It's coming up on Sunday, 10 a.m. Eastern, 8.30 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. And Right now, we can send you EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly directly to your email inbox each week. So if you miss the program, find out all about it. Visit EWTN.com. Click on the word subscribe. There you go. And if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with Elizabeth in Morganfield, Kentucky, listening on the Great Eucharist Radio. Hello, Elizabeth, a blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today?
0: Hi, and may God bless both of you. Thank you. Um, I may have misunderstood Dr. Anders, but I thought I heard him say that you do not feel the Holy Spirit. Our deacon says that when he was ordained, he felt a warm sensation in his body, and it was the Holy Spirit. And then you hear people say that the Holy Spirit moves them in different ways. Do you feel the Holy Spirit?
4: I, I really profoundly appreciate the question. Thank you so much. So the the Church is fairly clear in its teaching on this question. And the the idea that I can reliably— discern the presence of the Holy Spirit, because I have a particular kind of psychological state, that I have an emotion or a sensible experience, that notion that I can identify the Holy Spirit with some sensible motion within my psychology or within my passions is a is an error, and it has a classical name. It's called miscellianism. Wow. And, and the Church has condemned miscellianism. We, 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 you cannot infer that. And uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, but there's one I'd like you to consider, and that is the possibility that a soul might feel utterly bereft of God, Mm -hmm. uh, be in a position of profound doubt, a sense of alienation, the conviction perhaps even that God has abandoned the soul, total aridity, no positive affect whatsoever at all. A soul could be in that condition and yet be in a deeply gracious and spiritual state. And that, that also is the explicit teaching of the Church. In fact, one of the highest moments in the uh, spiritual quest is something that J- St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. And it is exactly this. It is it is the experience of a faithful soul who has lost any kind of sensible or even intellectual conviction of God's proximity and is a, and is a kind of— complete and utter darkness, where they where they hold to the truth of the gospel by a mere act of will alone, without, without intellect or sensible emotion supporting them in that act at all. And what the Church says is that that sense of total loss and alienation and aridity can be an occasion for profound identity with Jesus, who suffered alienation and loss upon the cross. And so I would have you consider, for example— psalm 88 which is an inspired text this is part of the holy bible and so we as catholics believe that the holy spirit moved the sacred writer to compose these words and what psalm 88 expresses is precisely that sentiment the sentiment of having been abandoned by god god's total absence i would ask you to consider the interior life of some of the greatest saints Uh, mother Teresa of calcutta is probably the most prominent example of someone who had decades of time in which she felt that God had abandoned her and questioned whether or not there even was a God. And yet we admire her holiness and heroic charity, not because of the quality of her emotional life, but because of the sanctity of her will that she persevered in acts of charity, uh, loving the poor as Christ himself, in spite of the lack of sensible emotion that would support that. Now, uh, I understand that it is extremely common, it is overwhelmingly common in the Christian world today, for people to identify their positive emotional experiences and pleasant sensible experiences with the activity of the Holy Spirit. And so the language that your deacon used about, you know, feeling a warmth spread throughout his body when when he, the bishop laid his hands on him and ordained him, that kind of thing is is overwhelmingly common that doesn't make it orthodox, it doesn't make it Catholic, and it doesn't make it reliable. Now, there, it, the, it is a dogma of the Catholic faith that we cannot know with certainty that we be in the state of grace, cannot know that we're in the state of grace. And if any man says, I know I'm in the state of grace, he lies. It makes a liar out of God. When When St. Joan of Arc, her inquisitors, her English inquisitors, were trying to trap her and they said to her, are you in the state of grace? Because if she said no, she'd be admitting to be in, being in mortal sin. Mm. And if she said yes, well, then she'd be committing the, 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 the sin of presumption. So they, sure. they figure they had her on the horns of a dilemma. Uh-huh. She was smarter than her inquisitors. And her, her answer was, if I'm not, may God put me there. And if I am, may God keep me there. Wow. All right, so that's the right answer. Now, does that mean that we are left— with absolutely no certainty and we're just tossed about on the winds of, of, uh, of fortune and we're, we're left in a kind of hopelessness about our state. No, not at all. And so there is something less than certainty. There is a kind of conjectural knowledge that a man can have, that he's in the state of grace. And yet, it's not to be inferred from positive emotion. It would be more reasonably inferred from the outflow of the virtues in one's life. And so, for example, if uh, if I were conscious that formerly I were, a, you know, a bank robber and an adulterer and a, and a forgerer and a perjurer and a traitor and every kind of wretch, and then I was conscious of coming to believe in Jesus and to repent of my sins and to go to confession and to receive Holy Communion and to persevere in the living of a Christian life, and I woke up one day and I realized, you know, I'm not murdering anymore, and I'm not I'm not perjuring anymore, and I'm not cheating anymore, and I'm not committing adultery anymore, and I'm not robbing banks anymore. My life seems to have taken a turn for the better. That, that would be conjecturally a sign that grace was at work in my life. And St. Thomas writes about this in the Summa Theologic. This is what he calls a conjectural knowledge of grace. But again, it's not an inference from positive emotion. Now, you know, I remember—Tom, I don't know if you remember these— you remember? Uh, you remember candy corns? Oh the, sure. The, the little, the little triangular, yeah. orange and yellow and white candies. You know? Yeah, yeah. I remember once when I was in when I was in say about second grade. I forgot what the occasion was, but there was some occasion when the teacher was handing out candy corn candies as a reward. Uh huh. But I remember part of the condition was that the kids had to put their heads down on their desk and close their eyes, and there was a note of uncertainty about who was going to get a candy corn. Mm. And I can remember sitting there, and this sense of hopeful expectation rose within me, and the hair in my arms stood up, and I felt this tingling sensation sort of pour (laughs) through me as my teacher approached my desk with a candy corn. And then I reflected years later how I had the exact same sensation in a charismatic worship service, but was wont to interpret it as the presence of the Holy Spirit, all right? Because I was primed to think that any kind of positive emotional affect was God's presence in my life. And then I remembered, yeah, but I felt that way about candy corn, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, yeah, it's dangerous, it's dangerous, because the problem with inferring the Holy Spirit from that positive emotion is that that positive emotion can be jacked up in any number of natural ways that actually tend against uh, the life of the virtues. They, They might tend against temperance, or against fortitude, or against faith, hope, and charity even. And uh, and we've seen that many times. I mean, I've said on the show before. in My wilder, younger days, when I was in the high school, I used to I used to go to Grateful Dead concerts, right? And you'd see all manner of emotions pouring oh, yes. out of people, you know, at <laughs> rock concerts. And sometimes they would be presented as if they had a kind of air of quasi spirituality about them. That's what the hippie movement, in the '60s, was all about. But we know that it was it was. It, you know, it's just a biological and sometimes a chemical phenomenon, yes. not a genuinely spiritual. And that's the danger with saying, hey, I had a powerful experience, that must be the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, sometimes perceptibly, but primarily f- noticeable through the transformation of our ethical life and character, our mode of consciousness, how we view people. Do we see them with dignity? Do we see them as Christ sees them? Do we see them as Mother Teresa sees them? Not necessarily that i have the um, you know the positive affect of a uh, of a you know of a of a grateful dead fan.
2: Elizabeth, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN. I'm still still trying to visualizing you chowing down on candy corn, which is pretty bizarre. Well, you know, we're talking 40 years ago. <laughs> well, that is that is true. Let's go to uh, Griffin, driving through Ohio, listening to us on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hello, Griffin. A blessed Lent to you, sir. What's on your mind today?
1: Uh, thank you very much. I uh, I currently am not quite in the entire Catholic faith. Or at least I don't know if I am. Um, I've been what we'll call a church window shopping, as it were. I'm uh-huh. trying to find that I, that I feel comfortable with and that, Um, I I feel as though I would be getting something out of, um, I seek wisdom, I seek more information, Uh, I'm trying to learn Hebrew or a couple of the other, even Greek, uh, so that I can read the original text, but um, there's always something that feels or, or strikes me as, or not quite right, or heretical about a particular church, and I won't name anything because I'm not. I'm not trying to poo-poo on any particular church, as it were. So, what is your advice on trying to find that particular place or uh, or that particular um, church that I'll be able to more? Uh, I say more feel at home with.
4: Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So you said one word, you have a long litany of criteria, but the one that jumped out at me, beyond feeling comfortable, which is a dubious criterion, I think, because it's possible to feel profoundly uncomfortable with something that nevertheless does you a great deal of good, Um, but it was wisdom. You talked about the search for wisdom. And, you know, the desire to, say, feel comfortable, the desire to feel at home um, there's nothing wrong with those desires. I I also very much want to feel at home in the world and and in my family in my skin and in my in my ideas, um, and yet I'm conscious that that I might need to be unhomed before I can be homed. I mean I might be at home with the wrong things, uh, that may not at all tend to wisdom in my case. I mean, from in my life that certainly was true at one point in time. I, I felt very much at home in an environment. That I think was was not doing many ultimate good, and so uh, but, the, but wisdom is the criterion that you gave that I thought was the most promising, and uh, we could talk a long while about the about what wisdom might entail. Um, here's a couple thoughts. One I think at the very least is that wisdom entails the ability to take your own good advice, right? So it's more than just an intellectual knowledge or conviction about the way the world works. It's, it's an actual ability to conform yourself to that insight morally, right? That your habits of mind, your affections, your, your desires, and your actions ultimately conform to what good sense tells you ought to be the case. And for most of us, that it's, it's one thing to have a intellectual conception of how the world ought to be, uh, how to be, ought to be ordered. Uh-huh. It's an entirely different thing to order our lives accordingly. Right, And so wisdom ought to at least address that. It ought to address the question of, you know, how do I order my life so that I'm capable of actually taking my own good advice? Um, Another thing about wisdom is wisdom is more um, than just uh, being intelligent. In fact, the studies on wisdom show that there's a a kind of a J-shaped curve on wisdom and intelligence. If you're really stupid, you're probably not very wise. But if you're an absolute genius— Actually, there's an impediment to wisdom there, and that is that absolute geniuses are usually used to being the smartest guy in the room, and they don't take advice easily. Uh. And so one of the keys to wisdom actually is docility, teachableness, the ability to take counsel, because even a genius can't know everything and still needs to be able to take counsel. Um, So it's not just intelligence, nor is it rationality. And, you know, what is rationality? Well, you know, rationality is the ability to take your intelligence and put it to good use, you know, to be able to articulate systems and concepts and, you know, link ideas together and that sort of thing. And uh, you'll find plenty of highly intelligent people among conspiracy theorists. Well, the rich ones, generally. The ones that write <laughs> the books that everybody else buys. Yeah. You know? You'll find people that are have brilliant intellects and can spin out a lot of fancy-sounding talk that can be very persuasive and that you may, nevertheless, sort of get into their lives and realize that things are a bit of a mess there, and you know, their ideology assumes some principles that can't be proved and may, in fact, be quite counterintuitive. So it's not the same thing as intelligence. It's not the same thing as rationality. It's more like the ability to use your intelligence and your rationality well that includes a note of humility, the ability to take counsel, prudence, and then finally that uh, those virtues of the moral life, um, like temperance, like fortitude, that enable you to take your own advice. And so I think it should be clear from that discussion that merely feeling at home may not actually serve the ends of wisdom. because you, when the thing about feeling at home is sometimes you kind of have to you have, have to sort of let down a little bit, let down your your vigilance and and rest in what feels comfortable. And that can be a great impediment. To precisely those virtues that we're talking about, right? The ability to listen to another point of view that's maybe outside of one's comfort zone. Um, The, uh, you know, the point of the Catholic faith is precisely at this. It's it's aimed at that transformation of consciousness and life that would enable us to see the dignity of other human beings, to be humble enough to take counsel, uh, to learn from the wisdom of the past and from tradition, And uh, and it's predicated on a realization that I don't know everything. So confession, examination of conscience, these things are critical to pursuit of wisdom, and they're critical to the Catholic faith. So I would invite you to consider Catholicism as a wisdom tradition. I actually gave a series of lectures, Catholicism as a Wisdom Tradition. You might find them
2: on the internet under my name, David Andrews. Go check them out. God bless you, Griffin. Thanks so much for your call. Lots more straight ahead on this edition of Call to Communion. It's called a communion on this Monday afternoon as we begin the uh, second full week of Lent here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before the break, we took a call from Griffin who is a bit of a seeker, I believe, looking for a, a church home. And uh, you actually found the uh, document that you were looking for, yeah, David. Yeah, so we, we had a discussion about
4: wisdom, the, the search for wisdom. Yes. And I, I gave a series of lectures a year or so ago for the Diocese of Birmingham titled Catholicism as a Wisdom Tradition. And uh, those lectures are available at the website, of the Birmingham Diocese's Office of Evangelization and Faith Formation. And so if you just want to Google search Dr. David Andrews Catholicism Wisdom Tradition, you'll find them, or you can go to BHM Diocese Evangelization and Faith Formation at YouTube, and you can find those lectures.
2: Griffin, uh, thanks so much again for your call. Glad that you were listening to us on Sacred Heart Radio. Back to the phones now for Beth, a first-time caller from Pittsburgh, listening on iHeart Radio. Hello, Beth. What's on your mind today? Hi. Yeah, uh,
0: thanks so much for taking my call. So, um... I was um, at, uh, with a bunch of girlfriends who were Protestant this weekend and somehow we ended up on a, um, a faith based conversation and um, talking about sin and um, and so I don't know what got us into this conversation but um, they had basically um, were questioning the Catholic belief that um, there's two types of sin you know that, that God um, differentiates sin and that in their uh, Protestant belief that, um, Sinister, and um, you know it's all the same in God's eyes, and um, and so I had brought up you know the examples like well you know what if God forbid like somebody shot and killed your son versus somebody lied to him like wouldn't it be a comfort to know that you know in God's unending mercy but also justice um, you know would deal with the person that shot and killed your son versus the the one that had lied to. Um, your son, and they said, well, yeah, in our, our human minds, that makes sense, but, but in God's, you know, um, unfathomable mercy and wisdom, that, that that's not how God sees things. And I, honestly, I didn't know how to um, respond to that, because I honestly yeah, don't know what Yeah, I've got a lot God to say is.
4: on that, and I really appreciate the question. So the first thing, I, I'm, I'm going to get into Scripture in a second, but before I get into Scripture, I want to get into something that your Protestant friends told you. Uh, you said to them, look, we, we distinguish between gravity of fault all the time. There's a big difference between, you know, like the, 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 the eight-year-old who cheats on his spelling test, which, which by the way, I did. Right? I cheated on my spelling Uh-oh. test when I was eight years old. Right, The eight-year-old who cheats on his spelling test and the serial murderer. Like, that to say that those are morally equivalent actions, we all recognize that that's absurd. And your friend's response was to say, well, yeah, in the human realm, that's the case. But to God, they're all the same. So what your friends are saying is that divine justice is something that has no analogy to human justice. is something that escapes human reason and human intuition entirely, right? And if that's so—and I don't think that's ca- the case, by the way. I think they're wrong about that. But that is a key Protestant claim, and Luther made the same claim. Right? So in, in essence, uh, Protestantism takes an irrationalist position. I didn't say irrational, I do think it's irrational, but I said irrationalist. They take the position that reason can't tell you anything about the moral life from God's point of view. So they disconnect morality from reason. That's a really, really important admission. Now, they didn't know they said that to you, but that is in essence what they said, all right? Now, here's, here's the problem with all irrationalist moral philosophies. You literally have no reason to accept them. You follow me? Yeah. Like, w- once you say that my, my system of morality doesn't truck with any kind of intuition you have about ethics or equity, mm-hmm. then you literally have no reason to accept them except the appeal to authority. And that is ultimately what Protestantism boils down to. They, they reject the idea that morality is about human flourishing or about the life of the virtues, um, that it's something we could know by reason, that it's something that's conformable to human nature, and what they argue instead is that morality is just whatever God decrees. Just whatever God decrees. Now, here are some of the consequences of that moral philosophy. If reason, if if morality is only God's decree, and God's decree is not grounded in anything conformable to, say, the nature of the human person discoverable by reason, then God could, with justice, command that you commit adultery. Because justice is just whatever God commands. God could, could with justice, command that you say you know, it, enslave some other ethnicity for generations. God could command that you commit genocide. Uh, God could command any kind of barbarity, and and you would be obligated to do it just in virtue of the fact that God commanded it. Now, that is not the Catholic position at all. Right? That is the position of several religious traditions around the world. Now, there's one very prominent one that's not the Protestant tradition that uses just that re- that reasoning to do things like take Yazidi women as sex slaves in, in Syria, right? Or to prosecute holy war against infidels and enslave them on the, on the theory that God has authorized them to do this and they just need no other justification. So the idea that, that God's morality doesn't have to answer to our intuitions about equity and that some radical other kind of order leads not to justice, but it leads to horrific abuses, Mm. Horrific abuses, to which we literally have no recourse because there's literally no reason for them. Yeah. Now, that's, your friends don't intend all that, but this is implied in the theory of justice that they gave you, mm-hmm. which is a very, very, very problematic position, right? So our, our intuitions about equity and justice are that one sin does differ from another in gravity. The eight-year-old who cheats on his test is not in the same category in God's eyes or ours as the man who is the, the, the serial murderer. Now, that being said, let us now go to Holy Scripture and show that Scripture is entirely on the side of reasonableness uh-huh. and not this Protestant irrationalism. Luke chapter 12, Jesus, the Son of God, says, "...the servant who knows the Master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the Master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with, flu- with few blows." Christ himself, right there, yeah. specifies that one sin differs from another in gravity. Depending upon your interior condition, do sure. you have knowledge and act with free will, right? not under compulsion, but yeah, full yeah. understanding. Mm-hmm. If you act with, you have free will and you act with full understanding of the gravity of your actions, your sin is more serious and deserving of greater punishment. Mm-hmm. That is exactly what Jesus says. It's right there. Right there in the text. James uh the apostle james says we all stumble in many ways but the man who is uh, who can hold his tongue is able, is is the perfect man and can keep his whole body in check so he here he distinguishes not so much degrees of of sin as degrees of righteousness mm-hmm. that there is a you know a, a a decent man who stumbles in many ways but he can't hold a candle to the guy who can hold his tongue and keep his whole body in check. Mm. And then, of course, there is the, the classic text of, of 1 John chapter 5, all unrighteousness is sin, and yet there is sin that does not lead to death. Not Some sin leads to death, he says, not every sin leads to death, hence the distinction between mortal, i.e. leading to death, yep. and other kinds of sins that do not. So Jesus and the apostles confirm that sin does differ from sin in degree of gravity. And in doing so, it confirms something that we all need to know, which is that God's moral conclusions are reasonable, and and will surprise no one, right? Because they don't they don't contravene uh, natural equity like the Protestant irrationalist position does.
2: Beth, is that helpful for you?
0: Yeah, that's super helpful. I just one more question, and I wrote down. Thank you. I was like sc- scrupulously taking notes. Um, so like what? Follow up question: Would you ask them, like, when it kind of got to that point, And like, so, in my um, very limited mind, I was like, well, I don't know how to answer that. But what question would you kind of counter to them next time that comes up in conversation? Yeah. Comes so up actually, I
4: would, I understand. would, I would change the subject. And there is a question I would ask them, um, but it's 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 more foundational than the difference between mortal sin and venial sin. Here's the question I would put to your Protestant friends. Did Jesus make provision for the authoritative transmission of the Christian faith? I'll say that again. Did Jesus make any tra- any provision for the authoritative transmission of the Christian faith? Did he tell us, in other words, you know, if you have a question about morality or faith or religion, how to get those questions answered? Did he give us a way to do that? Now, your, your Protestants... Uh, sort of knee-jerk response to that question is, well, yeah, we go to the Bible for that. But I want you to attend carefully to the language that I used. Did Jesus give us a criterion? Did he make provision? Now, here's the problem with the Protestant position. The Bible, as they understand it, is 66 books. you got to name them, from Genesis to Revelation, mm-hmm. including the 27 books of the New Testament. Did Jesus ever specify that this... Pers- particular list of 66 books is to serve the church as its final rule of authority, including on matters of morality. Now, as soon as you raise the question, you know the answer. No, he never did. He never did. Yeah. All right? The Protestant sort of knee-jerk response is, that I can't believe something if I can't find it written out in the express words of the Bible. It's called the doctrine of sola scriptura. Here's the problem with that. The Bible itself doesn't teach that doctrine. So the idea is self-refuting. Yep. So their, their whole frame of reference about morality and everything else is what I'll, I'll call kind of a fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible. That you know, you just, If you see it in black and white in the Bible or red and white in the Bible, then that's, that's what you've got to do. If it's not in there, you don't have to worry about it. And so when it comes to the moral life, that has huge implications. You know, like the Bible doesn't say a lot about thermonuclear war. Yeah. It says nothing about global warming. It, it doesn't say anything explicitly about contraception. Like, this, this huge areas—right now in Alabama, we have this big brouhaha over IVF. Oh, yeah. The Bible doesn't directly address IVF, right? There's all kinds of things that are morally relevant questions the Bible doesn't speak to. Now, the, the standard Protestant line is if the Bible doesn't talk about it, it's not morally relevant. But you see what that does to the course of human life. It, just, it eviscerates it of moral significance, whereas the Catholic position is, the Bible's not the rule of faith, it's not the final authority— Christ gave us the teaching church, the tradition of the church, and I mean, I can make the case for that in another another phone call, but he also gave us reason. And it's, in fact, because we have reason that we have consciences, and it's because we have consciences that we can even be held to moral account at all. So, rather than attacking them on mortal sin, I, I want to go straight to the heart of the Protestant view of reality, which is this business about the Bible alone, and call that into question, and leave them hanging. Yeah. Like, ask the question, see what they say,
2: all right, And then... If you run into trouble, call me back. Beth, good luck with your friends there. Thanks so much for your call from Pittsburgh. Call to communion here on EWTN. Are you up early in the morning? Are you perhaps a night owl? You're just uh, heading to bed early in the morning? You may want to join us for a wonderful series called Father's Know Best, coming up Monday through Friday, 4 a.m. Eastern. And on tomorrow's episode, Father John Ricardo talks about keeping our faith, how important that is. Do check it out, Father's Know Best, Monday through Friday, 4 a.m. Eastern, right here on on EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now for Robert in Nutley, New Jersey, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. A blessed... Uh, uh, almost did it. A blessed lent to you, Robert. What's on your mind today, sir? Robert, in... Yes, uh, yeah, go right ahead.
3: Yes, sir. Okay. Um, real quick question. I know you have a lot of calls. Thank you for taking my call, number one. Number two, you guys are great. Phenomenal work you do. I follow you guys every day. Um, all right, let's get to the point. I am an old, the group leader of my oldest servers in our parish at Lady Mount Carmel, Nutley, New Jersey, Roman Catholic Church. Now, um, I have been serving for quite some time. We don't have just youngsters, uh, male and female. We have a lot of elders. I am 62 years old. I have people serving. Under me, that are in their seventies, uh, from the fifties, fifty years old and up, uh, which is great. Uh, I've been praying on this for uh, uh, a lot of altar servers to step up to the plate, and um, I got my wish. Now, question for you: When we do the offertory, um, when we bring the when the gifts are brought up to the altar, and we prepare the altar. Um as the priest, the celebrant of the Mass, um, when he raises the Eucharist and he speaks, um, um, this is my body, um,
2: mm-hmm. which
3: will be given up for you. Um, and uh, when he does the chalice, this is my blood, the wine, which will be given up. For you for the forgiveness of sins do this in memory of me okay so what i my question is if i can't get to confession before i receive the eucharist on sunday morning because that's when i do my uh, altar service sunday morning we have sun saturday night mass and sunday we have four masses on sunday okay now i was told that by not going to confession before before you receive the eucharist the body and blood of christ you are in mortal sin. However, I am under the impression, at the Last Supper, I wasn't there, which that was 2,024 years ago, Jesus said, I didn't read this anywhere, but I watched Kings of Kings, the greatest story ever told. Okay, Robert, watched,
2: so your, your, your question then?
3: My question is, if I receive the Eucharist before I go to confession. And I don't go to confession. Isn't I um, um, relieve the sin by receiving the use of... Okay,
4: I can I can speak to that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. So here is the teaching of Scripture and the teaching of the Church: If we are conscious of grave sin, grave sin, mortal sin, then we must not approach Holy Communion until we have received sacramental absolution. You have to go to a priest for confession before you go to communion. If you go to communion with conscious of gra- sin without confession, then in fact you are committing what the church calls a sacrilegious communion. And it's something that St. Paul writes about in his first letter to the Corinthians. And he says that sacrilegious communion doesn't do you any good. You don't actually benefit from it spiritually. In fact, it's spiritually harmful. Now, why would that be? What would that be? Well, um, think about it. If you get in the habit of uh, of presuming on God's mercy in spite of being at enmity with God in your will, and that's what mortal sin is. Uh-huh. Then, rather than like bringing your heart around to union with God, you're actually going to become hardened in your presumption and in your sinfulness. So it's just going to make your spiritual condition worse. So we don't want to do that. You just know, there's no point in doing. It. There's no reason to go to communion. I mean, except sentiment, and sentiment never saved anyone, right? Sentiment sent a lot of people to hell. So don't do that now. However, St. James says, we all sin in many ways, some of them minor, and so for the forgiveness of venial sin, that's not mortal sin, then, then our participation at Mass can atone for venial sin. Right? Okay. And so, uh, you know, we don't have to be in a state of absolute moral perfection to go to Holy Mass, but we can't be in the state of
2: mortal sin. Okay. Robert, thanks so much for your call. Appreciate that. Checking in from uh, Nutley, New Jersey. Let's go now to Thomas, a first-time caller from Rocky River, Ohio, uh, watching us on EWTN television today. Thomas, what's on your mind today, sir?
1: Well, like I explained
3: earlier, uh, way back many years ago, we were at church, myself, my wife, and our two kids, and the priest said to
1: a group of young men in the back of the church, I'd rather you wouldn't come if you're going to stand back there. And we all took it wrong.
3: And my wife and myself are back at church, but my kids aren't going. How do I get
1: them back into the church?
4: Yeah, thanks. Well, I appreciate the question. Um, and, you know, I wish I had a kind of silver bullet solution that could bring all wayward children back to the church. Yeah. And the, the real issue is, though they were scandalized by a priest, the reasons that they've stayed away are many more, right? And so I could speak to the issue of the priest, but it's not going to speak to all of the issues of their life. Uh, when it comes to the priest, I mean, I, the priest's office is sacred, and as Catholics we respect the ordination of the priest. Um, but uh, but I, we have to demystify the persons of the priests, because they're just human beings, St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that uh, his congregation was passing judgment on him. They didn't like him very much sometimes. And he said, look, I don't really care if you pass judgment on me because it's the Lord who will judge me. But he acknowledges that the Lord's going to judge him. Yeah. Right? And priests have been given a charge that doesn't guarantee that they'll do it well. Yeah. Uh, It's just like being a husband. You know, if you're, if you're a husband, you have a responsibility to your wife and family, but being a husband itself does not guarantee that you will discharge that responsibility. And so there will be priests in hell for the failure to serve their flocks appropriately or to celebrate the sacraments worthily. And that's really important to understand. You know, um, and, and there, are, there have been times in history when diocesan priesthood was a spiritually dangerous place to be. St. John Vianney, who is the patron of all priests, was himself terrified of the, of the diocesan priesthood. And he, he was wrong about this, but he thought for a while that—this is a superstition of his—that yeah, he yeah. got over. But uh-huh. he thought, I can't go to heaven if I'm a parish priest. Oh, he wow. actually had that conviction. He thought that for him personally to go to heaven, he'd have to be a monk. Ooh. And so he kept sneaking away from the parish and joining monasteries— and they get kicking him out and making him go back to the parish priesthood, you know. And so finally he showed that, yes, indeed, you can go to heaven if you're a parish priest, right? But I, I tell the story merely to illustrate that, like, he himself—we're this we're talking about the patron of priests— Yeah. was so scandalized by the lives of priests that he was wondering if it was even possible for a priest to go to heaven, let alone certainty about them going to hell. Yeah. And, and, you know, it— it shouldn't be that way, but it is. And so it's, you know, sanctity and vocation. Vocation should lead to sanctity, right? But, but, but it's not a guarantee. And you can have sanctity without priestly vocation. And, and the, the, some of the greatest characters in the Church uh, and the most elevated saints are not priests. Principally, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so, you know, helping people come to an understanding of their dignity as the people of God, right? And that that's the primary identity of the Christian. It's not—I'm not David the married guy, you know, or Father John the, the ordained guy. I am, first of all, David the child of God, yes. who's a member of the body of Christ. Or I'm John, the child of God, who's a member of the body of Christ. And then— I may have a vocation within the body of Christ to marriage or to religious life or to priesthood, but the dignity of the Christian comes first from his baptism and his being a member of the body of Christ. And so that's, that's the church, and the sanctity is something that's spread throughout the whole body according to our state of life. And that attitude that the priests are somehow superhuman um, can lead to something called clericalism, which is a sin. And uh, Cardinal Newman captured the, the, uh, the humor behind this excellently when he said, You know, the church would look silly without the laity. <laughs> he said that in, in rebuke of priests that sometimes consider themselves above the laity or as yeah. if the church was there to serve their own private pleasures. And he says, Well, the church would look silly without the laity. You know, it's for the sake of the people of God so that they can all come to holiness. And many times it is the maybe, uh, maybe that priest's elderly grandmother. Is, is the example
2: of holiness that he should be looking to, you know, rather than to whatever. Absolutely. Thomas, thanks so much for your call. Linda is in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Linda, we have just a few minutes here. What's on your mind today? Uh,
3: my question was, I, I recently found out, well, someone sent me something that said, if you receive Holy Communion in your hands, it's like you didn't receive it at all, you should only receive Yep, yeah, so um, uh,
4: let me let me let me jump in real quick there because I'm running out of time. If that were the case, then I wonder why Saint Cyril of Jerusalem, doctor of the church, would specify the precise mode of receiving communion in the hand in his catechetical lectures. Fourth century doctor of the church. Doctor Saint. of the Church, Saint. Doctor of the Church means that the church validates that everything he says can be safely relied upon as as good Catholic instruction. Saints of the Catholic Church and doctors of the faith who have for millennia given specific instruction about the proper reception of Holy Communion in the hand. And keep in mind that reception in the hand is allowed by Holy Mother Church, by the Magisterium, by the Pope, and by the bishops. And so the person who, who argues otherwise is saying, in effect, I am right, and the, the, the one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church in the persons of her ministers, popes, and bishops is wrong. Well, we have a word for that. It's called Protestantism, yeah. right? When I, when I set my own private judgment of the tradition over against the judgment of the Pope and the bishops and sacred tradition, then I'm, then I'm, I'm just asserting the principle of private interpretation over, yeah. the, over the wisdom of the Church. And St. Augustine's rule about this f- from the 4th century stands today. He says, the verdict of the whole world is conclusive. You know, what the Pope and all the bishops throughout the world have decided is the, is the thing— and who am I to set myself up against uh, against the, the teaching of the church if yeah. I call myself a Catholic? Yep. So um, your friend is wrong, and this is a, a dangerous superstition uh, by which they are likely to fall into a kind of damnable spiritual pride where they look down on their neighbors as somehow sub-Catholic because they don't you know, they don't do communion the way I and all my magnificent wisdom declare must be done.
2: Yeah, that's dangerous. Linda, thanks so much for your call. A real quick one here from Aubrey watching us on TV says, "Uh, Dr. Anders, I'm coming around to Catholicism, but someone asked me why we worship Mary, not God. I didn't know how to respond to that. Please help. Yeah,
4: we don't worship Mary. We do worship God. And the simplest way to see this is to whom do we offer sacrifice? The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, which is the preeminent act of worship in the Catholic faith, is offered to God, not the Blessed Virgin Mary. Mary is there along with us as a co-worshipper. She's offering the sacrifice with us. We venerate the saints, not just Mary, we venerate all the saints, in the way that we might reasonably hail any noble person, like a civil rights hero or a founder of the country.
2: But, you know, if you think it's okay to honor George Washington, how much more is it right to honor the Mother of God? Yeah. Amen. Uh, Aubrey, thanks for watching us on EWTN television today. Thanks so much for your call from Detroit. Fast moving show today for a Monday, especially Dr. David Anders. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN radio at 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast. Check out the Encore tonight if you prefer that or go to the website EWTN.com. Click on radio and then look for podcast central where you can find all of our shows going all the way back to the beginning. On uh, behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow on the Tuesday edition of Call to Communion. Until then, have a wonderful day and God bless.